Amen. Good morning, church family. So last week, I talked about a literal mountaintop experience with my wife. If you weren't with us, um, my wife and I were married just outside Winter Park, Colorado, and during our wedding ceremony, it had just rained, and so we got married underneath a rainbow, and there were beautiful horses kind of galloping just right out here, center frame, as we are uh, exchanging our vows, and um, a, a, this is real, a hummingbird came down and drank from the flowers that my bride was holding. It was a literal mountaintop experience. But, you know, by God's grace, we've been married eight years now. And the moments that have created the most intimacy between my wife and I, or my wife and myself, are not the mountaintops. The wedding day was wonderful, but what has truly created um, intimacy, what has truly brought us together, heart and soul, has been just doing life together side by side, day after day. The real stuff of real intimacy is eating ordinary meals together, watching mediocre movies together, having normal conversations. The real stuff of real intimacy comes through living exceptionally unexceptionable days side by side, day after day, for an entire lifetime. And last weekend, uh, we had a mountaintop experience where we saw the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration. It was breathtakingly beautiful, but then what did we do? We dismissed you guys. And we all, I mean, I just wanted to yell at the worship team, run it again, right? Let's keep going. But we dismissed, and everyone walked back down the mountain, back into the mundane, to eat ordinary meals, have normal conversations, and live exceptionally unexceptional days. And so what if our options aren't only experiencing and enjoying Jesus up on the mountaintop or settling for the mundane? What if God has given us a third option? Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-carrying church. So if you came to church this weekend carrying a Bible, kudos to you. If you didn't, it's all right. Next week, bring a friend and bring a Bible. We want this in your lap. In Mark 9, Peter, James, and John just had the, the ultimate mountaintop experience up on the Mount, uh, Mount Hermon, Jesus was transfigured before them. And Jesus of Nazareth, this totally average-looking 30-year-old Jewish man, is, we saw, God's manifest presence returned. We saw that Jesus is the radiance of God's infinite glory. We saw that he is the realization of God's eternal plan. We saw that he's the, the revealing of God's beloved son. It, Jesus was breathtakingly beautiful, but look at verse 9. Mark 9 verse 9 says, and as they were, what does that say? coming down the mountain. They couldn't live on the mountain. They had to go back down to ordinary people having 
normal conversations, living exceptionally unexceptional days. So following Jesus back down the mountain into the mundane, Peter, James, and John are trying to make sense of what in the world they just witnessed. And that's where our verse picks up this morning. Uh, Verse 14, if you're there, say there. There. All right, guys, this is what we got out of bed for right here. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Stop there. Parents of young kids, you might know what this feels like. Have you ever returned from a trip, kind of exper- uh, just hoping for maybe some kind of reception, and you open the door, and your spouse is like, your son is in timeout, the other one pooped his pants, the house is on fire, glad you're back, right? And you're going, yeah, I'm glad I'm back too, right? In a much more intense way, in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this event immediately following the transfiguration. People are arguing, a chaotic crowd has gathered to watch the fight, and oh yeah, there's a demon. Glad I'm back, right? And so why do the gospel writers make sure that we know this is what's happening immediately after the transfiguration? Well, remember, Jesus going up the Mount of Transfiguration where, on a mountain, After six days, an exclusive audience, Peter, James, and John, heard God speak out of the clouds was a not-so-subtle allusion back to when God gave the law on a mountain after six days to an exclusive audience, just Moses, by speaking out of the clouds. The message was clear and obvious. Jesus is the greater Moses, and he's going to give God's people something greater than the law. Amen? That's what we learned last week. But do you remember what Moses found when he got to the bottom of the mountain? Listen to Exodus 32, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as they came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain." Remember, people figured, okay, Moses has been up there 40 days now. He's not coming back. He's di- he died. And in demonic disbelief, they discarded Yahweh and fashioned for themselves a new god, a golden calf. And they worshipped it by dancing before it. You see, we're supposed to see at the bottom of Mount Sinai and at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration, 
are God's people falling back into demonic disbelief. This passage we're studying today is our golden calf moment. And while we're not tempted to bow down or dance before golden statues anymore, let's see how our disbelief plays out at the, bo- at the base of the mountain. Look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? The first thing we see is that life off the mountain, you guys, is full of disputes. If you're taking notes, write that down. The disciples are arguing with scribes. Now, scribes were highly educated Jewish men who were paid to study, copy, and write commentaries on the law. And you guys, these these guys were meticulous. When making copies of the law, they would count every single letter and every single space to ensure that each copy was correct. Every time they would write God's name, Yahweh, they would actually change pens as a way to show reverence to the name. And so we can thank the scribes that whenever researchers discover a new manuscript of the Old Testament, like back in March, we found 80 fragments of Zechariah and Nahum. And the question always when we find new texts is, are there any discrepancies? And the answer is always no. Why? Because these scribes, they lived to copy this word perfectly. So it's no surprise that they're getting into it with the disciples. These are serious men. Most likely, they're arguing about the method the disciples were trying to use to exercise the demon. There were Jewish exorcists in this time, and they emphasized things like you must learn the demon's name in order to gain control of the demon. Uh, There were specific, you would have to recite specific incantations depending on what kind of demon it was and what it was doing. And so this argument was likely the scribes saying something like, hey, disciples, you're doing it wrong. And the disciples are like, well, then you do it. And the scribes are like, well, I got stuff to copy, right? Like they're just arguing about that. And, And isn't that life at the bottom of the mountain? Just dumb arguments. Know who's, who, know who's getting along really well? James, Peter, and John up on Mount Hermon. Why? Because the brilliant, blazing glory of Christ was burning their eyes out. And so they're wonderfully preoccupied with Jesus. They don't have the mental space to bicker with each other. But that's not life off the mountain, is it? If I ask, when's the last time you felt like bickering with someone, you probably don't have to think back to yesterday, right? Like this morning, I've never had a single argument with my wife while I'm sitting with the Lord in prayer and in his word. Why? Because I'm wonderfully preoccupied with the Lord. I don't have the mental space to get into it. But as soon as I close the book and start my day, disputes just come easy. Am I alone in that? For most of us, whether verbal or nonverbal, the hum of our heart is irritation, annoyance, tension, call it disputes. It's the first thing that Jesus sees at the bottom of the mountain. And let's see how he settles it. Verse 17 and 18, they describe the boy's symptoms. We'll come to that. But look down to verse 19, how Jesus settles the, the dispute. And he said to them, 
O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Here it is. Bring him to me. Jesus is like, okay, well, while you guys argue about form and technique, just, just bring him to me. The boy doesn't need a particular incense or a perfect incantation. He just needs me. Bring him to me. And guys, by way of application, when it comes to whatever we're arguing about, bring it to Jesus. See, this, you have to see this. Moses comes down the mountain with the law. And the best that the scribes, the world-leading experts on the law can do is argue about the law. Jesus comes down the mountain. The first thing he sees is an argument. And the first thing he does is settle it. Moses carried down precepts. Jesus carries down power that makes peace. Law can only add fodder to the fire of the disputing heart. But Jesus comes down and can extinguish the flame with one question and one command. What are you arguing about? Verse 16. Side note, that's a really good question to ask when you're feeling annoyed. What am I mad about? And one command, bring it to me. Verse 19. Life off the mountain is filled with sunup to sundown, external and internal disputes. And the next time you find yourself angry, annoyed, arguing, hear Jesus' question in verse 16. What are you arguing about? And then hear his command in verse 19. Bring it to me. The first thing he encounters off the mountain is a dispute. See the next thing in verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked her disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Life off the mountain is full of demonic influences. Now, the, the two ditches most Christians fall into is everything is demonic. Man, I, I got a flat tire this morning. Satan's after me. Could be. Could also be the 200,000 miles on those tires, right? You haven't changed those balloons since you were driving on a permit, right? One ditch is to think demons are behind everything. The other ditch is, and the one that I think most of us fall into, is nothing is demonic. We would have looked at this boy, I would have looked at this boy and said, this is epilepsy. Just get the kid on some meds. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, then you believe that there is disease predestined and purposed by God for good, and there are demons, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, they overlap, and the demons are causing the disease. How can you know when it's demonic and not just disease? Mark 9 gives us one indicator. The demon is trying to destroy the child. Why? Because, guys, demons hate God, and they can't harm God. And so the second best thing they can do is try to destroy and distort anywhere there's an image of God. That's why people are targets. We are Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. It's why marriages are targets. 
It's why churches are targets because where God is most clearly seen, demons are most aggressively on attack. And and I just want us to zoom out and see that this is life off the mountain. Now, most of us won't be demonically possessed, but all of us are demonically influenced. You better believe that. All of us are demonically influenced. Ephesians 6 says, we're not battling flesh and blood. What's standing against you and your marriage and your purity and your integrity? Demons are. So what do we do? Look at verse 21. Look what the father did. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. This hasn't been happening for a week, guys. Years. 22, and it has often cast him into fire and into water, not once or twice, often. But if you can do anything, just have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. According to Jesus, the way we respond to demonic influences is to believe. Guys, this week, battle by believing. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee. So so we just got to know this. Satan bullies who he can bully and he won't who he can't. Let me say that again. Satan bullies who he can bully and he won't who he can't. If you're intimidated by the demonic, you need to watch less horror films and read more Bible Satan is on the move, yes, but guys, he's on a leash. And under God's sovereignty, whatever God allows Satan to do in final analysis will work against Satan and for the glory of God and the good of his people. At the end of all of this, I was just reading this this morning, this isn't going to end good and evil with a big drawn out cosmic battle between God and Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, The Lord Jesus will kill Satan with the breath of his mouth. Guys, we're going to get to the end of all of it. The the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Jesus is going to be like, and it's over. Done. Jesus is going to breathe and it will be over. So catch this. Moses comes down the mountain with the law and the law gave you a fighting chance. Jesus comes down the mountain and Jesus carried down freedom. And guys, we can step into that blood-bought freedom this week if we will just believe that that we can actually say no to Satan. We can actually say no to demonic temptation. We can actually say, Satan does not want you to hear this. You can actually say no to indwelling sin. Through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you and I would just learn to spot, that's not of God. That is a lie from hell. I don't have to believe that. I trust God's word. Just watch how those temptations just go away. When you just call it out and say, I don't have to buy that. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I don't have to be bullied by you. Just watch how those thoughts just disappear. Satan is looking for people to bully. So men, look at me. Don't let him bully you. Women, don't let him bully you. You don't have to get pushed around. You're a child of God. Do you know who you are? Do you know who's inside of you? 
for your sake, for the sake of your family, for the sake of this church, for the sake of Jesus, battle this week by believing that the blood, for the blood-bought people of God, the prowling lion has been defanged and declawed. He can bite you, but he can like gum you. There's no sting left, right? All, all things are working for your eternal good. Resist him and he will flee. So the first two things Jesus encounters as he comes off the mountain are disputes and demons. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Life off the mountain is full of desperation. Hear the desperation in the parallel accounts. Matthew 17, 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him. Luke 9, 38. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now we know this is, this is an only child. Verse 39, and behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at his mouth. Just listen to this language. And it shatters him. It will hardly leave him. Guys, just think of the times this daddy reached into fire and water to pull out his now disfigured little boy. Think of the emotional fatigue of always being on the edge, just waiting for the next attack. Think of the relational strain on their marriage that, it often, that often accompanies stressful and painful parenting situations. Think of the financial stress of years upon years of pain, physicians and healers, all for nothing. Think of the shame that he likely felt since the popular day a popular belief of the day was that such illnesses came as a curse from God for your sin or the child's sin. So hearing stories of Jesus' power over disease and demons, it stirs this dad with enough hope to just at least try again. And he traveled for who knows how long, and when he gets there, the famous healer isn't even there. So desperate, pleads with the disciples for help. They tried their best. Once again, boy isn't healed. And so with tears in his eyes, he just says, if you can do anything, just have compassion on us and help us. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When you're off the mountain and you're discouraged and desperate, guys, we cry out. See it in the text. He cried out. This is not a polite prayer. It's a passionate plea. When was the last time you really cried out to the Lord? Prayers that don't move your heart don't move God's heart either. But when you cry out, when you are moved, Jesus moves. Notice, the dad never even explicitly asked Jesus for healing. Look at verse 22. But if you can do anything, here's what he asked for, have compassion on us and help us. When Moses came down the mountain, God's people were acting in unbelief. And Exodus 32, 20 tells us what Moses did. 
He took the calf and they, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. When Moses encountered unbelief, he literally rubbed their noses in it. And here, when Jesus encounters unbelief, not only does he instantaneously and irreversibly heal the boy, Luke includes this beautiful detail. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Moses carried down condemnation. Jesus carries down compassion. I don't know all the ways that your unbelief played out this week, but I know this. Jesus doesn't want to rub your nose in it. Jesus has compassion for our suffering. Jesus has compassion for our sinning. And where the law says, try harder, crowbar your way back to the Father, Jesus says, cry out, and I will bring you back to the Father with compassion. So don't be like the Israelites who were desperate so they turned away from God. Be like this father who was desperate so he turned to God. And while he had faith, he also had unbelief. You saw it, right? I believe, help my unbelief. Life off the mountain is full of disbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Is there a prayer in the Bible that you resonate more with than this one? And if you're like, yeah, dude, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. Then that's actually a really encouraging evidence of faith. Spurgeon writes, while, no, while one has no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as one has faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. Because this man believed, he was acutely aware of his unbelief. And if you are aware of your unbelief, this week, ask God for more faith. That's what he does. I believe, help my unbelief. Know what is, uh, this counsel is equally unhelpful as it is unbiblical. Telling someone, hey, just have faith. Just have faith, man. Faith is not something you can muster up. Faith is something God graciously assigns to each person in various measure. Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Before uh, Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why did Jesus pray for Peter's faith not to fail? Because he knew that it's God who sustains Peter's faith, not Peter. It's God who gives faith. So for all of us who, uh, of all of us for whom the contradictory prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, makes perfect sense. Be encouraged that that is actually an evidence of faith. And then ask God for more, uh, stronger, more sustaining faith. Again, see this. When Moses comes down the mountain with the law, faith was tested. When Jesus came down the mountain, faith was given. So the dad prays the most faith-filled, faithless prayer ever prayed. 
Verse 25, and, and now verse 25. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you out of him and never enter him again. It's decisive and irreversible. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. Look at that little detail there, most of them. Would that have been you? When things look bad, do you pray and wait to see what Jesus does, or are you like, well, I guess that's it. It is what it is. All these years later, Peter remembers there were a few people. Maybe it was Peter and he was too humble to say it. Probably not. Probably not Peter. Peter would have told us. But he remembers there's a few people who kept believing, who trusted that Jesus was doing something. But here we see that life off the mountain is full of death. In verse 26, Mark uses a graphic term, uh, term necros, corpse. Mark does not want us to miss this point. The boy was like a corpse. Some of them said, he is dead. On Thursday evening, I did a funeral for a friend's aunt, and as I was driving home, I got a call. Um, In Colorado, I did a funeral for a 16-year-old boy who had taken his life, and the call was that the son's father had done the same thing on Thursday morning. That's life off the mountain. Death is more real and present off the mountain than any of us like to think about. And so what does Jesus do? Look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Mark sees a foreshadowing between this miracle and the miracle that's going to end the gospel of Mark, the resurrection of Jesus. Guys, this is resurrection power here. Remember, remember what the disciples are thinking about as they're walking down the mountain. Look back at verse 10. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what was on their hearts. And so he gives them this just stunning object lesson that foreshadows exactly what they're thinking about, how the gospel of Mark will end and how Jesus will solve the death problem with resurrection power. When our days off the mountain are darkened by death, not if, when days are darkened by death, loved one, wait for resurrection. When Moses came down the mountain, he carried the law, which Romans 7.10 says, promised life, but proved to be death. When Jesus came down the mountain, he leaned into death, and prove to bring life. I say it often, guys, there's nothing that you can experience this side. Uh, There's nothing you can experience in this life that a good resurrection won't fix, right? Like the few people in the crowd who didn't assume death, you and I are supposed to wait, just wait, and trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. Resurrection is at the end of the story. Now, this seems like a really good place to end this account, but Mark now takes us to a little private room 
a behind-the-scenes look into the inner dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. Look at verse 28. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Anyone who's been following Jesus for more than a few weeks knows that life off the mountain is filled with defeat. The disciples are like, I don't get it. We've cast out demons before. What were we doing wrong? Why couldn't we do this right? And the story goes from focusing on the unbelief of the Father to the unbelief of the disciples. Verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you see it? Prayer. You see, the, the father of the boy knew something the disciples didn't yet, and we're supposed to see that. The father of the boy knew something the disciples didn't, that he needed Jesus to cast out the demon. The disciples thought they could do it while Jesus is off doing his own thing. You see, Jesus is bringing the disciples to the posture to cry out to God for help, to to bring their inability to Jesus, to pray, Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. And if you feel defeated in life, defeated in your walk with Jesus, Jesus is bringing you to that same posture. Not where you can just do this while off alone by yourself. Yeah, if Jesus is around, that's great, but if he's not, I'm good. No, Jesus is trying to get all of us to the posture to say, Jesus, I need you. I cry out to you. And what happens when we pray like that? Matthew 17, 19. Turn your Bible over. I want you to see this. If you've got a Bible, turn your Bible to Matthew 17, 19. This is Matthew's account of the same story. I've never known what to do with this passage before. Until Matthew 17, 19. This might be the, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It says this, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to, what does that say? This mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It doesn't say, oh, mountain. We always hear it like that, right? God will move mountains for you, just believe. No, no, this mountain. What's that mountain? That's the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon. Jesus is saying, listen, uh, if you want this mountain, what is that? The manifest presence of God experienced in Jesus. The radiance of God's glory seen in Jesus. The realization of God's plan in Jesus. The revealing of God's son in Jesus. If you want that, the glory of God seen, this mountain, what does prayer do? Move from here to there and it will move. You see, the options, you guys, isn't life on the mountain or in the mundane, the option is moving mountains into the mundane. It's not an either or. It's a prayer makes it a both and. So this week, as you pray, 
Here's how you bring the mountain, the glory of God, the the manifest expression of Jesus enjoyed and seen and felt and experienced, a a window-rattling, earth-shattering, life-altering encounter with Jesus into the mundane. We pray. And as we pray, we bring our disputes to him. We pray, and as we pray, we battle Satan by believing We pray, and as we pray, we cry out to Jesus in desperation. We pray, and as we pray, we ask God for more faith. We pray, and as we pray, we wait for resurrection. And then you will experience mountains in the mundane. Then you will experience Jesus in average meals and normal conversation in exceptionally unacceptable, unexceptionable days. Amen? Let's pray.